the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent uh, means the coming or the arrival uh, of the most important person in the universe. Advent, uh, we celebrate Advent on, on this uh, first day, uh, first Sunday in, in, in four, to remember that God had a mission, and his mission was to come and to save, seek and to save the lost. And he did that by sending his own son to dwell on this earth in flesh. And so uh, this, this first Sunday of Advent, we're going to continue in our series in, ne- in Nehemiah and, and be reminded how we can cast our eyes on that hope that is, has come at us in Jesus Christ and that is still coming at us because he lived and died. So if you remember last week, <clears throat> there, was a, there was the reading of the law to the, to the people of Israel. And there was a reading of the law that went for hours and hours, and they stood and they listened to the law read, and, and, and what it did was to make them to weep and mourn and grieve for their sins. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites and the priests told them, do not weep, weep no more. Not right now. Now is not the time for reaping, weeping, now is the time for feasting. But now as we turn from chapter eight over to chapter nine, the feasting has turned into fasting. The returned exiles were told to wipe away their tears, forget their sins, and celebrate the goodness of God. But any true worship of God must involve a proper understanding of sin and confession of sin. Sin can't finally be ignored. Aren't you glad about that? The sins that have been committed against you or those that you love or against the innocent, the unjust rule over people, that will not finally, cannot finally be ignored. God doesn't just sweep injustices under the rug. It has to be dealt with. I wonder, how do you deal with your sins? There's none righteous, not even one. There's no one in this room who is only righteous and has never sinned. Everyone sins. I wonder, is there any hope that you can be forgiven and restored? According to your worldview, how can, how can you have your sin forgiven? In a, in, a, in a world where you must be punished and canceled for breaking the world's ethical code? In a, in a world where there's no mercy for mess-ups? How can you recover from your sins and your mistakes? The Bible has an answer for that question. We're going to look at it in three, three points this morning. If you want the mercy of God, if you want forgiveness, you must remember his goodness, confess your wickedness, and rest in his righteousness. If you want mercy and forgiveness, you're, you're not going to get it from living a better life. You're not going to get it from, uh, from other people. You're not going to get it from uh, doing a certain amount of penance or, or, or anything like that. If you're going to get mercy, it must come from God. You must remember his goodness, confess your wickedness, and rest in his righteous 
compassion. And remember, Nehemiah is the story of the God who rebuilds and restores. This is the story of the God who rebuilds and restores in the face of enemies who oppose from without and and in the face of sin that opposes from within, that rises up from within us. And so, uh, as we read Nehemiah 9, 1 through 5, remember, this is the story of God who is rebuilding his people. He's brought them back from exile. They have been punished, and now they're in the land. The wall's rebuilt. They have the law read to them, and they, after their feasting, it turns to fasting because they know they have sinned and done evil in God's sight. So here's the setting in verses 1 through 5. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So the the feast lasted from the 15th day of the seventh month to the 22nd day, and then there was the eighth day to remind them of the new creation God was bringing. And now here in the ninth day, after the feast of booze, after the feast of tabernacles, here they are. It's turned from feasting to fasting. They have sackcloth. They have the the clothes of, of, of a reminder of their sin, and they have earth on their heads reminding them that from earth they were made and to earth they will return, and because of their sins, they're in this position. And then the Israelites separate themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God on the stairs of, of the Levites, stood Jeshua, Benai, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so I think what sticks out to some of us is that they separated themselves from the foreigners. This, this was God's call was for them to be dedicated not arrogant. So they were gathered to confess the sins of the Israelites, not the sins of the Gentiles. So they gathered together and they separated themselves from the foreigners. But it's important for us to see you weren't excluded because you were a foreigner. You were only excluded if you didn't want to be a part of God's people. In Ezra 6.21, Ezra 6.21 talks about the, the Passover, and the Passover was a, a, was a meal eaten in remembrance of God bringing them out of Egypt. And in Ezra 6.21, it says, it, the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So this is a Derek Kinder says this is a crucial verse for correcting the impression that one might gain that Israel was bitterly and a bitterly exclusive party. They may have been at times, but they weren't meant to be. They were meant to be a nation that says, come and see, 
Come and see what God has done. And, and as God includes the outsider into this very Passover meal, that in, impression can turn to the reality that we find that the only self-excluded, only the self-excluded run welcome. If you wanted to be a part of God's people, you did have to convert and believe in God, and, and you'd have to follow the ways of God. But it's only the self-excluded that were unwelcome. The convert found an open door, just as Rahab and Ruth had done. And so, as they're gathering and their, their feast has turned to fasting, now they're mourning the sins of their own people. And anyone who wanted to be a part of it could have been a part of this mourning of their sins. And we see in verses 6 through 15, if you're going to have mercy from God, you must remember his goodness. You must remember the goodness of God. In verses 6 through 15. To remember God's goodness is to rehearse the history. And, and the history of Israel reveals that God, the God who was there at the beginning, will be there at the end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 5. And you'll notice as we read that God is the subject of every sentence. Notice in verse, beginning in verse 6, the they remember, the first step in getting God's mercy is to remember his goodness. Now, neither Nehemiah nor Ezra is mentioned in this passage. It is, it is God's people, it's the, the Levites, the servants of the temple, who, who gather together with God's people to individualize this sin. It's not, it's not just Ezra and Nehemiah confessing this, it's the people confessing their sin together, just like Sean led us through this morning. And in verse 6, he says, they say together, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made with him the covenant to give to his offering the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers in the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire and night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and laws by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn 
to give them. Notice, this is, God is the subject of every sentence here. It is God who restores and rebuilds his people, but it is, it is the God who gives mercy that must be seen as the God who is the supreme actor in this, this play of history. I wonder, do you tell your history this way? When people ask you your story, is God the subject of every sentence? Is he the one behind the scenes directing your path? God is the author of all of these. And the author gives four distinct periods in Israel's history from creation to the call of Abram. From the renaming of Abram to Abraham and and the covenant with Abraham. His, His promise to make a nation out of him and to give him a land. And the third period is the affliction and redemption from, from Egypt, affliction in Egypt and redemption from Egypt. And the fourth one is the wilderness wanderings and all his provisions. And, and why, does, why does God do this? Why, why does the author make a point of these, these four periods of history? His friend, God brought them from creation, the creation of everything the choosing of a new people after, after Adam had, had, and Eve had, had fallen into sin, and to the, to the rescue of that people from slavery in, in Egypt, right up to the possession of the promised land. And the author is highlighting the promise and fulfillment in the Old Testament. God makes promises and fulfills them. Even in the face of Abraham throwing his wife under the bus, even in the face of Israel who disobeys and dishonors God and casts his law behind their back, he is the creator and the savior. This is the God who is good. This is, this is the God who is good. And you must remember his goodness if you're going to, if you're going to have his mercy. The first step in in receiving his mercy is to remember his goodness, is to know his goodness. And this is what the author does for us. The the people, they they restate and they, they pray out the history of their people as a history of God leading their people. He's the creator of everything. He's the chooser of Abraham. He's the covenant maker and name changer. He's the seer of suffering. He's the righteous redeemer, the loving leader, the law giver, the rest giver, the hunger and thirst quencher, the promise keeper. He's all of those things. Why should you remember all of those things and rehearse them before the Lord who knows all of them already? Why should you do that? Because apart from the goodness of God, there is no mercy. There's no mercy. You know that if you if you peruse the dark parts of online or this culture, there's no mercy anymore. But with God, there is. And because he's good, he wants to share it with you. So friend, how will you remember God's goodness? How, how will you rehearse it and, and, and rehearse it and rehearse it? Because rehearsing God's character and work takes a concerted effort. And 2023 is 
is upon us. And one way to, to do that this year is, is, is maybe to keep a journal of all the ways God has worked in your life, in community. And, and, and then to make the connection of, of those works in your life, how do those connect to his character? Now just think of this past year. What has God done? Even just for this church. It's the 10th year anniversary we celebrated in October. 10 years of God's sustaining grace, even through pastoral changes and the transience of Corvallis. You all know what that's all about. Through COVID, which has broken up many congregations, and yet here we are, sitting together, basking in the goodness and kindness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. November 3rd, 2019, this congregation extended a call to me to be their next pastor. Three years of, of God's goodness in, in, in me and my family being here and, and, and you having a pastor. That, that's a kindness of God. I think of the God answering the prayer that the Rosses are having a baby. I think of the babies that were born this year. Now I tried to go from memory, which all the babies were born, and I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss one. Brooklyn, Lewis, Elodie, is it Elodie? Yes, and probably more. But God has been kind. Our brother Jared has gotten a job, and and though our hearts are sad because he's he's moved towards Hillsboro, we we prayed with him that he would get a job, and God has kindly answered. These are some of the many ways God has worked. How will we rehearse his character and his goodness in this coming year? The very first step to receiving God's mercy is to remember his goodness, his character, and his works. The second step to receiving God's mercy is to confess your wickedness. And the people of Israel are an example for us here. The people begin in verse 16 through 31 by confessing the sins of their ancestors. They feel intimately connected to the sins of their fathers. They don't call these sins their own sins, but they do recognize them as sins and as reasons for God's punishing of them. And rehearsing these sins helps them to define what sin is. Well, starting in verse 16, we read, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. These, these were the people that God brought out of Abraham through, the, through Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness wanderings, right up to the promised land. These ones acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, they refused to obey, and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow, to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. The 
sins of their ancestors and their forefathers, much like ours, are, are serious sins that, that, involve, that must involve some sort of punishment, that must involve some sort of recrimination. They were proud. It said our ancestors were arrogant. They were, they were proud against God. They were stiff-necked or, or stubborn. They, if you have kids, you know when your kids are stiff-necked against what you want them to do, right? And so you know yourself to be stubborn and stiff-necked at times, digging in your heels on things that you don't need to. They did not obey their commands. They disobeyed. They refused to listen. They plugged their ears to God. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember. They failed to remember his goodness. They failed to do all of these things. And all of this is a, is a reminder of our, our own sin. Uh, I mean, you can recall times when you've been proud, stubborn, disobedient, refusing to listen, and failing to remember. For, for example, in the wilderness wanderings, God was providing for them all along the way, but instead of trusting the Lord and his leader, Moses, when things got hard and they thought they were going to starve or go thirsty, they decided to appoint another leader to bring them back to Egypt, their slavery. They thought they knew better. God's response to their sin is seen in his character. Those two, those words, but you are a God ready to forgive. God's response to their sin based on his character is that he's ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful. He's full of grace, unmerited favor, nothing that you deserve, just ready to lavish it. He's also merciful. He's, he's ready to give you kindness in place of your sin. And he's slow to anger. The, the, the word there, slow to anger, is literally long of nostrils. And, and you know, when, when someone would get mad, the picture is like when someone got mad or, uh, you know, a, a bull would get mad, they would get, their nose would get red and they would steam up. But God is long of nostrils. He's, he's slow to anger. He's, he's, he's not quick to be mad at you. So he did not forsake them. And in verse 18 through 25, how, what was their response in, in the face of this? Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Even in the face of idolatry and blasphemy, Here's more of their sins. They're not just proud. They're not just stiff-necked and stubborn, disobedient, refusal to listen, and a refusal to remember. They're also idolatrous and blasphemous. They made a golden calf and said, this is your God who led you out of Egypt. After God said, you shall have no graven images before me. And in it, they were blaspheming God. Idolatry in the Bible is, is compared to adultery. There's, if you haven't experienced it, there's no greater betrayal than when one spouse cheats on the other spouse. It's the greatest betrayal known to mankind, except when the creation cheats on the creator. Imagine how, 
you hurt, even if secondhand you've experienced it. How you hurt for, for those who have been betrayed by a spouse. That's what idolatry is to God. He, he chose Israel and pictured them as a wife, and, and what did they do? They committed adultery. They went whoring after other gods who, who they could touch, who they could make, who they could see. The greatest betrayal is known to man. And what did God do in the face of cosmic rebellion? Adultery of the creation against the creator? You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. In the face of a cheating spouse, what does he do? He leads them along as a pillar of cloud by day. He does not depart from them by day. He, he leads them along as a, a good husband who's been betrayed, at, like a pillar of fire by night, so they'd be safe. They had light to see. His glory did not depart from them. This good husband, God, Yahweh, you gave your spirit to instruct them. He did not depart from them, but then he gave his very spirit to instruct them in the wilderness so they, they wouldn't be without his word. And instead of going hungry, he gave them bread from heaven. Instead of them dying of thirst, he, he, he gave them water from the rock. And, and instead of letting them be cold and their, and their feet swelling, he gives them clothes and shoes that didn't wear out. In the face of this sin, their great, his great mercies were upon them. And not just that. He now gives, he brings them into the promised land in verse 22 through 25. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them to every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and a land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. He promised Abraham that his offspring would be as great as the stars of heaven. He fulfills that promise, his promise and fulfillment. And you brought them into the land and you told their fathers to enter and possess it. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And they should have done that. They delighted themselves in God's good, God's good gifts, his, his great goodness, they moved into turn, turnkey, ready houses, orchards that had, had already been cultivated and were bearing fruit. <laughs> this is the mercy of, this is the picture of salvation. It was all done for them. All they had to do was come in and enjoy it. When they came into the land and enjoyed what God had promised them, they did not stop sinning. They sinned all the more. It was re just asking people to read the Bible with me this week, and, and someone asked, why, why do we do this as God's people? Why do we 
like Israel, get complacent in the face of God's goodness. We have the fat of the land, and we, we, we enjoy the, the things that he has given us by, by mercy and grace. And, and, and most of the time, instead of being thankful, we get complacent and sinful. Well, friends, it's because we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Why are we prone to do that? Because we are sinners by nature. We come out of the womb connected to Adam in a way that condemns us. We're, we're sinful. We don't, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. We, you know, none of us drift towards holiness. Nobody drifts towards more righteousness because of who we are. That, that's why we must be constantly vigilant in our sanctification, our fight against sin, and our, and our, and our seeking after righteousness. Because complacency in, in, during good times is always a danger. Complacency in marriage or a career can prove disastrous. But complacency in relationship with God is fatal. These people are determined to do what is right in their own eyes. So they cast God's law behind their backs. He's, he's given them his law. He's come down on Mount Sinai and gave them commandments, even told them how to rest. And, and they said, boop, you know, like the, the kids on Home Alone with the socks, the Christmas presents. And that's how they thought of God's law. Toss it behind their back. They kill God's spokesman. You know that, that saying, don't kill the messenger? They didn't get the memo. They killed the messenger, the prophets. They were just telling them what God wanted them to know because they wanted to govern themselves. And this is the first sin, friends. And what is God's response to them? In verse 27, God gives them up to their enemies who made them suffer. God, God gives them over to what they wanted. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. They cried out to God in their suffering and he heard them and in his mercies, he gave them saviors or judges. This is now the period of judges as they're in the promised land. They had no king. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They had no king. And, and, and when God gave them over to their enemies to, to enslave them, and so that they might suffer and then turn back to God. And when they turned to him, they gave them judges. He gave them saviors. You know, complacency and self-governance leads to suffering. I, I'm not saying not, not all suffering is a result of your sin, but complacency and self-governance, the, the governing of yourself over letting God govern you will always lead to suffering, eventually. But God, in his kindness, gave them judges like, like Barak and Deborah and Gideon and Samson. And, 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 and in the story of judges, you, you see this, this cycle that they would, they would be saved. They would cry out to God, they'd be saved, and God would hand them over 
to their to their enemies after they sin. So they would they would sin. God would hand them over to their enemies. They would cry out to God, and God would save them. And this cycle, this happens over and over again through the 20-something chapters of Judges. And it's not so much like a straight line, but it's like a, a spiral downward. The cycle of Israel's history in the Judges is like a spiral downward, the drain, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And what is God's response? What is God's response in the time of the Judges? Nevertheless, verse 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. I mean, have you read the book of Judges, friends? It's pretty gross. It ends with a chapter of a man cutting up basically his wife and sending it to the 12 tribes of Israel. All her body parts in 12. I mean, does it get worse than that? And in his great mercies, you didn't make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Romans 5 tells us. Whereas sin came into the world through one man and, and death through sin, and so death spread or passed to all men and all women because we're, we're all in Adam, Nevertheless, where our sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more when we'll turn to him in his goodness and confess our sin to him. Nevertheless, well, how, how is that possible? For you are a gracious and merciful God. And our sins are much like the people of Israel. We're, we're proud and stubborn. We do not obey God's commands. We refuse to listen. We fail to remember. We are idolatrous. We are blasphemous in the ways we live. But the abounding grace of God is even more. How, how is that possible? How is it possible for God to forgive us if he won't let sin go? How is that possible? How is it possible for his grace to be more abounding than our sin? We sing about it. His mercy is more. Richard Sibbs said it this way, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in me. Friends, if you want God's mercy, you must remember his goodness. You must confess your wickedness. And you must rest in his righteous compassion. So what do these exiles learn from praying the history of their people? Well, it's summarized in verses 32 through 37. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that as has come upon us, Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. 
And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because, our, because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. So what do they learn? Friends, they learn that God, not people, keeps the covenant and steadfast love. It's the God of the covenant who keeps the covenant and steadfast love, not people. God is compassionate and that they can appeal to him. In verse 32, God is righteous and they are wicked, but that will not stop him from having compassion on them. God has a heart for the slave and the mistreated. So in verses 34 through 36, they just say, look, we are slaves and, and we know we are here because of the wickedness of our people and because of our own sins. But we are slaves and mistreated. Verse 37, they, they're distress. They cry out to God in their distress. Their distress matters to God. Friends, if you want mercy from God, you must realize that you cannot earn it. You must rest in him and his righteousness alone. So can your sins be forgiven? Can you recover from the stupid stuff you have done? No. Not on your own. You need a savior. And God himself is that savior. Friends, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. In Jesus, he came in human flesh so that you might be forgiven. He, he took on flesh, and he came as a man. He, he died naked and exposed and ashamed so that your sins might be covered, and God's wrath might be satisfied, and you could be forgiven and in real flesh that he still bears to this very day and will forever, he rose again victorious over sin. So can you be forgiven? The answer is yes, because of Jesus. How can his mercy, how can God's mercy be more than your sin? You know your sins. Is there more mercy in Christ than sin in me? The answer of Israel's history is there's way more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Not all the sins of us here multiplied by a million can compare with the mercy that is in Jesus Christ. So will you have hope this Advent? If you will, you must remember his goodness, confess your wickedness, and rest in his righteousness. Receive his mercy, dear friend. Father, Father, 